0: Well, a couple weeks ago, we finished the book of Titus. We were studying through Paul's letter to Titus in Scripture. And next week, we're going to be starting studying a brand new book of the Bible. That's going to be 1 Peter. So next week, we'll begin that. This week, however, I want to talk to you about something else while we have a free week. First, I want to ask you, have you ever heard of feral children? A feral child, also known as a wild child, is a child raised in isolation from human parents. This means they had little to none meaningful human interaction during their formative years. For instance, you've heard the saying, uh, I was raised by wolves. If that were true of you, you would be a feral child. And if that were true of you, if you actually were raised by wolves, you would be in good company. According to ancient Roman legend, Romulus and Remus, the two founders of Rome, were raised by wolves. Or more famously, there's Mowgli. Mowgli the main character in The Jungle Book, who was raised by wolves and went on to become ruler of the jungle. Tarzan, of course, raised by apes, also becoming a, a jungle ruler of sorts. And, and, of course, there's Peter Pan, who was a feral child who fled to magical Neverland, refused to grow up. So this concept of wild children raised outside the influence of parents is not new. In reality, though, true Feral children who are raised with limited social interaction or parental guidance are not so well off. Feral children lack even the most basic social skills and they have trouble interacting with other humans. They can display animal-like behavior and some were so detached from human interaction during their young years that they never learned to speak. Some can only communicate by grunting. And at that point, it becomes almost impossible to teach them language. And parents who neglect or abandon their children to this extreme degree that they may not be wolves, but they certainly are monsters. And every few decades, it seems like some unimaginable story comes up of such childhood neglect. From 1970 came the story of Jeannie. Jeannie spent the first 13 years of her life locked in a bedroom. During the day, she was tied to a child's toilet. During the night, she was bound in a sleeping bag and placed in an enclosed crib with a metal screen cover. If she tried to speak, her father beat her. The father also prevented his wife and their son from ever leaving the house or from ever talking to Jeannie. The wife eventually escaped and fled to authorities. When the authorities first saw Jeannie, though, they thought she was six or seven years old when in reality she was 13. She was nearly mute. She had a vocabulary of about 20 words. Most of them were negative, like stop it or don't or no. And despite efforts, she could not be rehabilitated or educated. And today she's 55. She's just institutionalized, committed to the state. In 1991, up the coast in Santa Cruz, three young sisters were rescued from a similar fate. Authorities arrested... Ruby Pointer, age 40, for child endangerment. When they entered the apartment, they found piles of garbage everywhere, rotten food, mold, stacks of unwashed dishes. And they also found three girls, ages 2, 4, and 6. They were malnourished. They had matted hair. They had dirty clothes. And worse yet, they never learned to speak. They could only grunt or scream. And then just a few years ago, it happened again. One day, a police car pulled up to a house to assist a child abuse investigator in Plant City, Florida. Two officers went into the house. One quickly came back out. Let's just say he he lost his stomach. That's because the house was filled with this thick, haze-like stench that would just fill your pores. There was dog urine and feces everywhere. The the walls were yellow with smoke. The floor crunched with every step you took, almost like you were walking on eggshells. That's because the house was literally infested with thousands of cockroaches. Detectives opened a door down the hall to find the space the size of a walk-in closet, and there they found a little girl on a moldy mattress, emaciated, crawling with lice, full of insect bites and rashes, She was seven years old, but she was still just wearing a diaper. She had never been to school, could not hold a doll, did not react to heat or cold or pain, could not talk, could not even nod yes or no. Thankfully, though, this story has a little bit of a better ending in that she was rescued and today has been integrated into an adoptive family that cares for her. But what do you make of these stories? And what do you think of these parents? And thankfully, the vast majority of the population can't even fathom such atrocities, let alone commit them. And I'm sure every sane person would agree that no punishment is too great for these wicked parents. They have socially murdered their children. They have prevented them from ever living a normal life. And you would be right to greet such people with disgust and disapproval. And few crimes are so vile as the abandonment and the neglect Of a helpless child. Now, all that being the case, what do you think of parents who spiritually abandon their child? How would you judge parents who neglect their child's spiritual development? Well, if I came up here and I told you stories of parents who They raised their kids in safe suburbs. They sent them to great schools. They had them play lots of sports. They went on lots of vacations. But they never spent time pointing their kids to God. They never told them about Jesus. Never shepherded them through sin. Never shared the gospel with them. Of course, you can't save your kids. But what would you think of parents who don't even try to lead their kids to Christ? Who just neglect their souls? And more importantly, what do you think God thinks of such parents? As vile as physically abandoning your child is, do you not think God is also disgusted when Christians who know better spiritually abandon their child? And as bad as being socially or developmentally handicapped is, do you not think it's just as bad to be spiritually handicapped? And as terrible as some living conditions may be, do you not think hell is far worse? Let me just put it this way. The spiritual dimension of your parenting is the most important one. These stories we just heard, they they truly are. They're shocking. They're disgusting. They're disturbing. But I hope you realize that in God's eyes, it is equally shocking and disturbing to see parents spiritually neglect Their own children. What Christian parents need to realize is that their children don't belong to them. They belong to God. Your children are not yours. They're God's. He's given them to you on loan. They're stewardship. And you're called to be good stewards. Someday he's going to take them back. He takes everybody back. And the only question is, how will you return them to him? And let me take this one step further. If God despises parents who spiritually abandon their children, what will they think of the church if we spiritually abandon children? What will they think of the church if we neglect the souls of the next generation? Of all people, Christians in the church should be the most diligent to present their children to God. So how bad would it be if we failed in this regard. Parents in the room, what are you doing to spiritually shepherd your children? And for non-parents, for everyone else, everyone in the church, what are we all doing as the church to spiritually shepherd the next generation? It doesn't matter if you have kids or not. We're all called to this. And this is what I want us to consider this morning. Here at Brethren Bible Church, even though we're small, we have a good number of children proportionally, and we've got a little baby boom going on. Several pregnant ladies. Be sure to be praying for those pregnant mothers. But the time is now for us to to rise to the occasion to minister to these little ones. So, what should we do? How can we not be accused of spiritual neglect? How, what can we do about this? How can we raise up the next generation, and please God? At the same time, what does children's ministry even look like? And that's the question. What does a biblical, God-honoring children's ministry actually look like? And whether that ministry is in the church or in your home. Thankfully, God's word is not silent. Children are important to God. Raising children is important to God. and. This comes through in his word. There's many places we could turn to, but for this morning, we'll just choose one. That's going to be Psalm 78. So open your Bibles with me, if you haven't already, to Psalm 78. Do you know which is the longest psalm in the Bible? Probably do. Psalm 119. Can you guess what the second longest psalm in the Bible is? Okay, Psalm 78, good guess, good guess. Psalm 78, the second longest psalm. It's also one of five psalms that recounts Israel's history. But the goal of Psalm 78, it's not merely to retell Israel's history, but rather to learn from it. The psalmist seeks to offer a commentary on Israel's history whereby we can learn from the nation's past mistakes. Let's begin by reading the first four verses of Psalm 78. It reads, "A masculine of Asaph. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord." and his strength, and his wondrous works that he has done. So the psalm begins with a superscription. That's what it's called, a superscription. See where it says, a of Asaph? That's what it is. So let's ask this first. first things first. Who's Asaph? Who's this guy? Well, Asaph was basically King David's worship leader. He was in charge of the musical worship when the ark was brought into Jerusalem, And then David also commissioned him to lead the people in several psalms of praise. And psalms were like the hymns for Israel. That's what they are. And over time, Asaph went on to write Psalm 73 through 83. And he also wrote Psalm 50. So that's who this guy is, Asaph. You're probably wondering, though, next, what's a masculine? What on earth is that? Well, most scholars agree that a masculine is a teaching psalm. That's indicating a teaching psalm. See, all psalms are forms of Hebrew poetry. They are essentially poems. And most are intended to lead the people in worship. And they would even be accompanied by music and instruments. These are basically song lyrics for the ancient Israelites. But some also functioned as teaching instruments or teaching tools to instruct the people as well. And Psalm 78 definitely functions as a teaching psalm. Look again at verse 1. He says, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. He's telling the people, ponder his teaching. Listen to what he says. Stop and consider what he's going to tell you. Verse 2. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. And this is interesting. First, he says he's going to tell a parable. You probably know what a parable is. A parable is just a short story with a lesson attached to it, basically. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to tell a story here, the story of Israel's history. And there will be a lesson attached. And then he says, I will utter dark sayings of old. What does that mean? What's a dark saying? Well, that word for dark saying literally means a riddle. Some translations, it just says a riddle. Or a perplexing statement, and you all know what a riddle is it 's a statement that does not immediately make sense and on the surface it, it doesn 't seem to make sense. There are several layers of meaning or understanding, and until you understand all the different layers, it just doesn't make sense uh, i 'll give you an example i 'll test you see if you can solve the riddle here. I like this one: a woman shoots her husband. <coughs> Then she holds him underwater for over five minutes. Finally, she hangs him. But then five minutes later, they both go out to dinner and enjoy a wonderful time together. How can this be? You see, on the surface, the story doesn't immediately make sense. That those don't compute. It doesn't make sense until you study the language of the riddle and discern that the woman is a photographer. She shot a picture of her husband, developed it, and then hung it up to dry. So it's obviously a silly example, but you get the idea. There's multiple layers of meaning. And until you get them all, you're not going to understand what it means. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He's going to tell a story, the story of Israel's history. And there's going to be a lesson attached, but it might perplex you. It might stump you. It might not immediately make sense to you, this lesson what's the lesson? What is this riddle, you could say? Well, I'll phrase it like this. Throughout Israel's history, they have been disobedient, unfaithful, rebellious, and idolatrous, yet God still sets His love and His grace upon them. How can this be? That's the riddle. That's the that's great riddle of the entire Old Testament. How can God... Still come to Israel's rescue time and time again, even though they were so unfaithful and rebellious? It is the great question of the entire Old Testament. And the answer is simply because God has chosen to set His love and His grace upon Israel. They did not deserve to be chosen in the first place, they did not deserve to be rescued, but it's all by God's grace. And choosing, and the same riddle is true of us today in the New Testament. No matter how great the sin, God stands ready to forgive and restore his chosen ones. And regarding this teaching, Asaph says, look at verse 3. Which we have heard and known about the teaching, and our fathers have told us, we will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, and his strength, and his wondrous works that he has done. He's saying that he learned this lesson from his fathers, and far be it from him to conceal it from the next generation. This poetic story of Israel's history comes in verses 9 all the way through 72, long section. And there are many great lessons to learn there from Israel's past. But we're not going there. That's not where we're going. Perhaps another time we can delve into the lessons learned from Israel's history, but now I want to turn your attention to verses 5 through 8. The little section in between, verses 5 through 8. You see, before telling the story of Israel's history, Asaph gives a reminder. And yes, that there are many vital and important truths to learn from Israel's past, but what good does studying The past generation do if you never instruct the future generation. Discerning this teaching is futile if you never pass it on. And that's his reminder in verses 5 through 8. Every generation has a duty, and that is to pass on God's teaching to the next. And every generation has a ministry, a children's ministry, whereby they are to raise up their children to know God. That is his reminder in verses 5 through 8. So with this in mind, that's our task for this morning. I want us to narrow in on verses 5 through 8, from which we're going to find five pillars of children's ministry. That's where we're headed with this, five pillars of children's ministry. Any solid, biblical, God-honoring, lasting children's ministry should be built on at least these five pillars. So let's begin. First things first, number one, the pillar of the word. That's the first one, the pillar of the word. This comes from the first half of verse 5, the pillar of the word. Look at verse 5 with me. For he says, He, God, established a testimony in Jacob, and he appointed a law in Israel, which commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. Four, verse 5, he says, For God established a testimony in Jacob and he appointed a law in Israel. God has given his word to his people and he intends that they know it and use it. God's word, it should be a pillar for all ministry, not just children's ministry. But certainly, as is the case here, the next generation needs to be brought up on the word of God. First half of verse 5 here, it's a great example of Hebrew parallelism. Where here, the author, he's saying the same thing in two different ways. That's all it is. He's saying the exact same thing in two different ways. Verse 5, God established a testimony in Jacob. And then parallel to that, God appointed a law in Israel. Same thing, just two different ways. God has left behind. He has set up. He has established his word for his people. The Bible teaches us about God. It, and for that reason, it's precious. This is God's word. This is his truth. This is his message. And for that reason, you should cherish and know the Bible. In fact, turn over with me just a few pages to Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119. This psalm showcases the glorious nature God's Word. The psalmist recognizes that the words of God are the conduit to God himself. To know God's Word is to know God. To keep God's Word is to know life. It's about the Word. That's how we get to God. Psalm 119 knows that, and it uplifts the Word for that reason. Let's just look at a few verses. We obviously don't have time to look at the whole thing, but look at verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who, what? Observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. What's the key to a a blessed life? The word. Skip down to verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. What's the key to a pure life? The word. Verse 11, he says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. What's the key to winning the battle against sin in your life? The word. Verse 16, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. What's the key to happiness? The word. Finally, verse 18, just one more. He says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law." See, the Bible should be central in each of our daily lives. The psalmist, he meditated on God's Word from sunrise to sunset, each and every day, seven days a week. It's just a continual thing. The Bible needs to be a pillar in your own daily life, and additionally needs to be a pillar in any ministry to children. Let me ask you, what is the goal of ministering to children? If the goal is to entertain, then go ahead and simply use TV, movies, games. Go ahead. That's fine. Some churches view children's ministry as glorified babysitting for an hour so that the real people of the church, the adults, can you know go do their thing, go fellowship and have their Bible time in big church. You know, let's just tuck the kids away in a corner for an hour or two. Just keep them busy, keep them occupied so we can go do our thing. And children's ministry becomes either entertainment hour Or glorified babysitting. That's what children's ministry is in many churches. But really, what a wasted stewardship opportunity. Do you know how much a steak lunch at Smith and Walensky in Manhattan costs? Probably not. $35. Do you know how much the same lunch Eaten in the company of legendary investor Warren Buffett costs? 2.5 million. That's how much one man actually paid for a private lunch with the billionaire investor Warren Buffett. 2.5 million. Imagine that's you. You just forked over 2.5 million. I know you would do that. You would just you just forked over 2.5 million to, to sit at lunch with Warren Buffett. And what if he just sat there silently the whole time? Or what if you just talk about weather or sports or trivia, nothing important? What a waste. I mean, you're there. You want the business secrets. You want the investing pointers. You want something good. I mean, your time is precious. You just spent two and a half million for it. You better get something good out of it. You better use that time wisely. It's the same with children's ministry. The church cannot waste its stewardship opportunity may not cost you a half million dollars, but it is invaluable time nonetheless. And whatever time we have in the church, we must use it wisely. And if the goal is to expose children to God, to lead them to Christ, to Lord willing, make them disciples, then you need to use the Word. If you want to train a child to be a painter, use a paintbrush. If you want to train a writer, use a pen. An athlete, use a football. A musician, use a guitar. But if you want to train a child to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you use the Bible. Like verse 5 says, God has left behind a testimony. And one of the main purposes is so that future generations might come to know him through it. And so here at Berean Bible Church, you can expect in our children's ministry the centrality of Scripture. You can expect it. The Bible is to be central in all things. It's it's the focus of our attention and whatever we're doing. And please, don't confuse this with being boring. You see, teachers, not God, teachers do a great disservice when they make the Bible boring because they don't know how to teach to children. But knowing God and learning the truth are far from boring. Children need the word implanted in them in fun, creative, biblical, age-appropriate ways. But regardless of the method, whether it's through a craft, an activity, a game, a story, the message of Scripture is to be central when instructing children. And this then is our first pillar of children's ministry, the pillar of the Word. The pillar of the Word. Let's move on secondly now, the second pillar of children's ministry, the pillar of instruction. The pillar of instruction from verse 5, and 6. So look at those verses again. Verse 5. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should, what? Teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. This is the pillar of instruction. And notice the second half of verse 5. Asaph, he's reminding us this comes to us as a command from God. God commands that parents instruct their children. There are to be no spiritual feral children. No child is to be left behind when it comes to spiritual instruction. And I love this. It's, I love how this is such a perpetual command here in verses 5 and 6. In other words, it's for generation after generation after generation. It just keeps going. Four generations are in view in verses 5 and 6. Four of them. Look there. God commands parents, that's one generation, to teach their children. That's a second generation. And why? Verse 6 so that the generation to come. Might know God. the kids who haven't even been born yet might know God. That's the third generation. Well, what about them? It says, so that they may arise and tell them to their children. That's a fourth generation, and just on and on it goes. And what we see here is that the measure of truly successful parenting, it's not just raising good kids. It's raising good kids who themselves become good parents. That's the real test of successful parenting, raising good kids who therefore then become good parents, knowing the Lord. I said earlier, verse 5, this comes to us as a command. When did God ever command parents to instruct their children, though? When did that happen? Well, let's turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here in Deuteronomy, Moses is retelling the law of God as the people are preparing to take possession of the promised land. Back in chapter 5, he just retold the Ten Commandments. And here we get to chapter 6. He gives some more important instructions for the people. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll start off reading verses 1 through 3. He says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, and a land flowing with milk and honey. So basically he's saying, here's God's word. Heed it, listen to it, believe it, obey it, that it may go well for you and your children. Then comes verse 4. Verse 4 is a very famous verse to Jews, I guess you could say. It's known as their Shema. Maybe the most important verse they have. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. It's their recital. Verses 4 and 5. Let's read them. He goes on to say, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Sounds familiar, huh? Because Christ picked up on that. He knew and attested that this was the greatest command. It's a very significant passage for the Jews. Really, this is a summary of their entire law to love God. And then we get to verses 6 and 7. Look there now. He says, These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your home and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. There it is. Verse 7, there it is. You shall teach these words, God's words, diligently to To your children. And you have to understand this is a very pivotal passage in Deuteronomy. Moses just retold the Ten Commandments, and then he just came to this climax of the Shemon, verses four and five. Right after that, what does he say? He says, Now you better be sure to teach all this to your children. And so do you think instruction is important to God? Yeah. Instruction is He's important to God. And notice, this is not just a one-time thing. It does not suffice to read the Bible with your kid once a month, once a week. It does not suffice to instruct them every now and then. When you get free time, apart from all the, the sports and the school activities. It does not suffice to teach them whenever you get around to it. Rather, how are you to teach them? Diligently. When are you to teach them? When you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. Translation, all the time. That's 24-7. Biblical instruction to your child is a 24-7 ministry. It's, it's all the time. God's Word should ever be before you, and you should always be, therefore, imparting it to the next generation. And get this. This comes... In the form of verbal communication, yes, but it also comes in the form of nonverbal communication. Do you know that you are instructing your child by the way you live? You instruct them through your example. That's right. Notice verse 6. Before you are able to truly instruct your child, he says these words, God's words, they must be where on your heart. They need to be in you. It doesn't mean you have a bunch of verses memorized. It means you believe them and you treasure them. You're convicted by them. It means God's word is your life. You know God through his word. You have a relationship with God through his word and you're just going to naturally pass it on to your kids. But knowing God Knowing the truth and living out the truth are prerequisites for your instruction. Children have to see their parents practice what they preach if their instruction is to carry any weight or authenticity. What good does it do to teach your children to pray when they never see mom and dad pray? What good does it do to teach your children to read the Bible when they never see mom and dad read the Bible? What good does it do to teach them that real men sacrificially love their wives when they never see dad do that? What good does it do to teach them to not lie when they see mom keeping secrets from dad? You get the point. Neither parents nor the church can fail in this job of instruction either in teaching or in example. Mistakes mistakes are just too high. Understand this. If you fail in this task, if you fail to instruct your child spiritually, guess what? Someone else will. Someone else will instruct them. Either their friends at school or their worldly teachers or TV or society or or something. Sooner or later, the world will instruct them and draw them away from the truth. And do you want that? And if you leave an instruction void, what do you expect? Something's going to fill it. And instead, you fill that void with the truth of God's word. Don't neglect the sacred and essential duty of children's ministry. It's the pillar of instruction. The pillar of instruction. Third, Now the third pillar would be the pillar of God. Number three, the pillar of God. I'll be brief with this one, but what do I mean by this? Simply that God should be the celebrity in children's ministry. God should be the star. God should be the center of attention. The Bible tells us his story. It's about him. And if we're using the Bible to instruct children, God should be the focus. And look at verse 7. Turn back to Deuteron- or Psalm 78 and verse 7. All this instruction is geared that, verse 7, they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments regarding the children. And just notice how God-centered this is in verse 7. Parents should instruct their children so that they should put their confidence in whom? In God. So that they should not forget the works of whom? God. So that they should keep the commandments of whom? God. God. Children need to see God like the sun in the solar system. He's at the center. He gives light and life. And he is supremely glorious. Everything else revolves around him. And this is especially pertinent today because most people in the world, their life revolves around something else. And God is an afterthought, if a thought at all. Their lives revolve around money, or work, or school, or relationships, or children, or hobbies, or sports, or entertainment, or something else. But God is not supreme in their life. And Christ does not have first place in all things in their life. Our children cannot be raised this way, both in the home and in the church. You need to communicate to them that God is supreme, and that He is important, that He is the center of all things. This doesn't work if you come to church on Sundays, but then God is not found in your house the other six days of the week. It just doesn't work. Children will pick up on and learn that inconsistency. Instead, as often as you sit down or walk, speak to your children about God. Just tell them about God. What do you say, you may ask? I don't know what to tell them. Well, just tell them who God is. Explain His character to them. And you can do this in understandable terms. Tell them He's really big. He's really powerful. He knows everything. Tell them that He's good and kind and loving, just, merciful, gracious. Just tell them about Him. Tell them what God has said. Tell them His story. Reveal His commands. Tell them right and wrong, good and bad. And tell them what God has done, His works. Isn't that what verse 4 says in Psalm 78? Psalm 78. He says, we will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Tell them how God created all things. Tell them how he flooded the earth. Tell them how he chose a nation for himself. Tell them how despite this nation's rebellion, God still delivered them from slavery and blessed them. And tell them how he did the same thing for us. Tell them how God delivered us from slavery to sin and blessed us through life in Christ. Tell them about Jesus. The centrality of God in your child's life should only be matched by the centrality of Christ. And really, this just leads us to the fourth pillar of children's ministry. It transitions us well into the fourth pillar. The pillar of salvation. The pillar of salvation from verses 7 or 8. Or if you want, you can call us the pillar of Christ. The pillar of salvation. Look at verse 7. Speaking of instructing children, he says, the goal is that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. You see, the purpose of the pillar of the Word, the purpose of the pillar of instruction, the purpose of the pillar of God is to get children here to the pillar of salvation. And the true goal of instruction, says Asaph, it's not just that the next generation would have a head knowledge of God. They would know some facts, some data about God. That's not the point. The goal, he says, verse 7, is that they should put their confidence In God. This word for confidence really just refers to your your gut, your inward parts. That's what it means in in Hebrew. It's a Hebrew way of of referring to your inner person. Let's say you're at a basketball game. It's halftime. One team is just getting creamed. They're losing big time. But that's because it's it's their fault. They're slow. They're lazy. They just don't care. So what would you say about them? You'd say, well, their heart just isn't in it. Their heart is not in it. The Hebrew would say their gut is not in it. That's this word. That's what it means. Their gut's not in it. The problem with the team, it's not on the outside. It's not that they're not strong enough or fast enough. It's that their heart's not in it. The problem is with their inside. And here in verse 7, the goal of instruction is that children would come to know God on the inside. That they would trust Him from their hearts. That they would put their confidence in Him. This is is talking about salvation. There's nothing more than salvation. And what's more important than this? What is more important than the eternal salvation, the eternal destiny of your child? Does it really matter if they go to Harvard or become a millionaire or marry a good spouse if they spend eternity in hell? This is why salvation is the ultimate goal of children's ministry. And only after this can they, verse 7, know God, remember God, keep his commandments. And notice the contrast here with verse 8. We want our children not to be like generations past who did not know God. And specifically here, Asaph, he points to the generation of the Exodus, which was a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation, he says, that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. And despite any outward shows of obedience they may have had, they, that generation, their heart did not know God. And their spirit was not faithful to God. They did not have a true saving relationship with God based on faith. And that's the key here. Children's ministry must be geared toward leading children to the point where they come to place their own faith in Christ. They need to have that change of heart on their own, whereby their heart is changed by God. Not every child of a Christian parent is saved. Nor does God guarantee that He will save every child of Christian parents. And furthermore, you don't have the power to make them believe. You can't make them believe. They must believe on their own. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. No child is saved on the basis of their parents' faith. They must come to have their own faith. And for this reason, the ultimate task of children's ministry, therefore, is to bring children to God's doorstep. It is to lead them to the threshold where they may just take the last step, the final step, the step through the door of faith. This begins by teaching them about God, which we've already discussed. But this also involves showing them how they are not like God. It involves showing them their sin, showing them how they fall short of a perfect God's perfect standard for them. You know, on the off chance, I know that this wouldn't happen to any of you at this church, but on the off chance that your child disobeys you or sins, if that ever happens, it's not just a punishment opportunity, it's, it's a shepherding opportunity. An opportunity to explain to them that they have fallen short and that there are consequences for falling short. You need to build in your children that conviction that they can't be perfect, they just can't perfectly obey, that they're always going to fall short. They need to understand that the, the consequences for disobeying mom and dad or disobeying God, they're unavoidable That's right. because they have this problem in their heart, this sin problem. Then they need to realize that they need someone to be perfect for them. They need someone to deal with their sin problem. They need someone to make them right before God. They need a Savior. Then you tell them or retell them about Jesus, that Jesus is that Savior. He's God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. He perfectly obeyed God, and yet he still died. Why did he die? Death is the consequence of sin. Jesus never sinned, so why did he pay the consequences? Well, he died because he was paying your consequences. He died as a a substitute for you so that you won't have to die eternally. And he died taking your sins upon himself so that if you would just believe in him and follow him instead of following your sin, you would be saved forgiven and granted eternal life what God has done for us through Jesus Christ applied by the spirit it's complex enough that it cannot be exhausted by the greatest mind yet simple enough that it can be grasped by a child so do not neglect this pillar the pillar of salvation any any ministry any children's ministry that does not or is not built on the pillar of salvation is not really a ministry at all it's our fourth pillar, the pillar of salvation. And there's one more. Lastly, briefly, the pillar of parents. The pillar of parents. This final point here could be an entire sermon. I'll just try and be brief with it. You know, This entire sermon, I've been talking about children's ministry. And when I say children's ministry, what comes to your mind? A lot of you are probably thinking, you know, children's Sunday school classes and church activities and crafts, stuff like that. But every time I say children's ministry, do you know what I mean? I mean parenting. Children's ministry is simply parenting. That's what it is. Mom and dad are the ministers, and children's ministry takes place in the home 24-7. Understand this, children's ministry is the responsibility of parents, not the church. If you think you can drop off your kids for an hour or two a week and they'll grow up to be good Christians, you've got another thing coming if you don't do anything about it at home. You, the parents, are their primary shepherds. Even in our text, look back at verse 5. What does he say? What did God command? God commanded that fathers would teach their children. He didn't say, fathers, you don't really have to do anything. Just drop them off at church. You're good to go. No, he said, fathers, you teach your own children. Children's ministry is parenting. Where does the church fit in then? Well, children's ministry at church exists to complement parents. Now, when I go out to eat, grab a burger, meal's fine. You know what really complements the meal for me, kind of rounds it off. Just a Coke, soda. I just I don't know. Maybe I'm addicted to soda, whatever. Just give me a Coke or something. It complements the meal. A church exists to complement your parenting. Church is not the main meal for your kids. You need to feed them all throughout the week. And church is to assist you in that job. Children's ministry at Berean Bible Church aims to reinforce what children should be learning. All throughout the week. Reinforce their Bible learning. Reinforce their knowledge of God. Reinforce their understanding of salvation. But the foundation is to be laid by the parents in the home all day, every day. So when it comes to children's ministry, parents, it's not about where do you fit in. It's about you're running the show. And still, though, for us at the church... We have our work cut out for us. Don't get me wrong. We still have our work cut out for us in the church. Some of you may not have kids. Some of you, your kids are grown. You're not really functioning as a parent anymore. This is all still for you, this children's ministry. Because you also have been entrusted to take part in this community to shepherd and raise up the next generation. And though our influence over these little ones, maybe just a few hours a week, when they're here at a Sunday school or a midweek stuff, Nonetheless, like we said before, those are precious hours. So what are you going to do to capitalize on that time to help parents raise their children and train them up in the way they should go? Whether you're a parent or not, everyone in the church needs to play a part in shaping and influencing the next generation to know the Lord. So remember these five pillars, all of you to children's ministry, whether that ministry is in the home or in the church. Pillar of the Word, pillar of instruction, pillar of God, pillar of salvation, pillar of parents. Our children's ministry at Breen Bible Church is just taking shape, but you can expect that it will be Bible-based, instruction-driven, God-centered, salvation-leading, parent-supporting. And so just ask yourself, where can you fit in? That's your takeaway. Where can you fit in? Opportunities, they're going to abound in the next couple of months. So keep children's ministry at church on your radar and get invested in the next generation. When the time comes, get involved. But always be praying. Be praying for our children that they would come to know the Lord. and Be praying for our parents that they would rise to the challenge that God would give them grace in this momentous task to train up children in the way they should go. Let's pray now for them. Father God, we do want to lift up children and parents at this church and in churches abroad. Thank you for all the little ones you've blessed us with here at this church. And indeed, this little baby boom on the way. It's, It's an amazing thing. We're so thankful. Every child is a gift from you. They're like arrows in the quiver of an archer. And they're all a blessing. So we thank you for them. We pray for their health and safety in their years, but more importantly, we pray for their salvation, that they would come to know you, that you would speak life into their hearts, you would transform them and draw them to yourself. Only you can supply that power. But Lord, I also pray for the parents, that they would be faithful to lead children to your doorstep, that they would bring them to the threshold, show them you, show them Christ, show them their sin, and show them the Savior. Tell parents to take seriously that task. May they overcome the difficulties of parenting as as there are many and overcome the distractions from parenting as there are many and, and make that time to for what's truly important, the spiritual foundation of their children. May they not abandon or neglect their child's spiritual life, but pour into it all the more so. And I pray also for those who are not parents or who are graduated parents and their children are out of the house. May they also get excited, invested, and involved in ministry to children, whether here or elsewhere. Help them to take uh, an important role in children's lives and, and being an example for them, and also pointing them to Christ, pointing them to God. As our children ministry is built here at this church, may they all be involved in, in working and serving and leading in any way they can. And may you bless us as a result. Help us to be faithful and never be accused of neglecting that next generation, that they may rise up and know you. In your name we pray. Amen.